Heavenly Father, you are the creator of all that we can see and that which we cannot see. All that you made was purposed to bring you glory and honor both now and forever. Those of us created in your image as male and female, we were made to love you and to be loved by you. You made us to to know you and to be known and to worship you and to be your servants. You saved us by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might faithfully serve you. You've trained us by your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word. You've given us a church and parents to raise us in the faith that we might be your servants. You humble us even this day by crushing our pride causing us to put our hope and our trust in you, that we might rely upon your power and not our own, that we might be the effective servants that you've called and saved us to be, servants who love you, servants who love one another, servants who share the gospel with the lost and make disciples in this great faith. We thank you for the great work that you have done and are doing here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to do a mighty work through this church and here in the South Bay, that many might come to know you and as a result be saved. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters this morning that are worshiping in like-minded churches. We lift up West Hills to you this morning, and we ask that you would bless Pastor Josh, his love for Jesus Christ, his fidelity to the word and the preaching this morning. We ask as well, Father, that you would bless their church and the saints that have gathered, that you would cultivate in them a deep love for Christ and a desire to share that with others. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be magnified this morning, that you would bring clarity, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring encouragement, that you would, above all else, transform us into the image of Christ, that we might worship you and Christ and the Holy Spirit right this morning. We praise you for gathering us here in this holy convocation to do just that. Father, we want to worship you in spirit and truth. We want to hear you speak to us through your word. As we had a chance to sing and glorify in the blood of Christ that covers all of our sins and be thankful that your mercy is greater. Lord, cause our hearts to rejoice this morning in that, I pray. Give us the ability to see the gospel clearly this morning to encourage us and rejuvenate us and refresh us. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen. Hmm. There's something right about saying Jesus, thank you, is there not? I think we could utter that every sentence we speak every day that we live, to thank him. We are able to thank him because of his sacrifice. And it is truly a sacrifice that if we we had a chance to sing about it, when we think of the mercy that comes through that, it is sufficient to bring us to our knees and to cause us to want to worship him this morning. I pray that's why you're here. I pray you're you're not here out of obligation or duty, but out of a desire, a desire to hear God, a desire to sing to God. I am so thankful that we had a chance to start Exodus two weeks ago. I pray that you are thankful as well. Um, we have made it, if you, don't, if you have your Bible, please open to Exodus chapter 2. Um, if you're not there already, we're going to begin at the end of chapter 1 and then pick up 
and make our way halfway through. I was going to do all of chapter 2, and there was no way. Um, not unless you'd be really patient and give me another 45 minutes, because that's what I needed. So we'll do that next Sunday, okay? Um, this is a glorious passage. Uh, it, it, t- it tells us a story about a man named Moses, who you all know. But I pray it sheds some light on him and Christ and us in a way that we, maybe we've never seen before. Sir Isaac Newton, for those of you who remember your physics class in high school, he taught that the first law of motion is an object in motion, stays in motion with the same speed and the same direction unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. Ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against our Heavenly Father and embraced the ways of Satan, the speed and direction of fallen man has been one of sin and death. Sin begetting more sin and the corruption of man's heart ruining God's once beautiful, sinless, glorious creation. In order for there to be a change in the speed and direction of mankind, we needed an unbalanced force to make this comparison more fitting for our passage. We need a life-giving, all-powerful Savior to come from God by God's authority and in God's power to bring the force of the gospel upon fallen man to change the direction of sin and death to life with Him. Salvation as a gift through faith in God to a dying, rebellious, hell-bound world. In Exodus chapter 2, whether you recognize this or not, we see how God intends to do just that. He shows us His hand in bringing about Moses. And He tells us that He's going to He's going to bring about a global course correction in the speed and direction of sinful man by sending a Savior to do the miraculous. In our passage, we're going to see him send Moses to set his people free from the slavery under Pharaoh and bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And we're going to see how that points to Jesus Christ, who also did the miraculous by living and dying, that we might be set free from our sins and brought into the promised land, which is the dwelling place of God. We pick up our story, if you were here with us last week, at the very end of chapter 1. And if you were here with us, uh, you heard that there were desperate times taking place in Egypt for Pharaoh and for the Israelites. And you've heard the old adage, desperate times call for desperate measures. In Egypt, the, the Israeli population was swelling. It was an immigrant population within the borders of Egypt. And so Pharaoh was doing everything he could to slow that population down. His first plan was to enslave them, to bring such suffering and such hardship that they would no longer multiply. But God continued to grow them anyway. Pharaoh's plan B, we heard last week, he recruited the midwives. He asked them to kill every single boy born to a Hebrew woman. Of course, the wives under the leadership of Shifra and Pua rebelled against Pharaoh, aligned themselves with God, and they saved these boys. Desperate to subdue the nation, he comes up with plan C. The slavery did not work. The infanticide did not work, so he comes up with genocide. And he calls all the Egyptians to take the Hebrew boys and to throw them in the Nile. Look at verse 22. 
Verse 22, Exodus chapter 1, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying this, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so Pharaoh capitalizes on a culture of death by going after the Hebrew boys. He moves from slavery to infanticide to genocide. He was truly the Egyptian antichrist, doing everything he could to thwart the will of God. But as we know from the passage, that is not possible. God's will cannot be thwarted by Pharaoh or anyone else. Pharaoh was desperate. And as we'll see from the passage today, the people of God were desperate as well. The situation in Egypt had hit a fever pitch, and it was the perfect time that God was going to come in through a Savior and magnify His glory by setting them free. A Savior, as we will see, who is Moses, who will lead them out of Egypt into the Promised Land, and a Savior that points to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who leads us out of slavery and into the freedom and rest He offers to all through repentance and faith. So this morning, I'd like to introduce you to Moses. He is the faithful servant of God in the Old Testament. He is the grand figure of God in the Old Testament. And I want you to hear him and see him as he points to Christ and as he points to you. I want to do that in three ways. One, I want to show you how God saves his servant. I want to show you how God trains his servant. And then I want to show you how God humbles his servant how he saves his servant, how he trains his servant, and how he humbles his servant. And in so doing, as we look at the life of Moses, I want you to see personally, if you know Christ, how he saves you, how he trains you, and how he's called you to be humble that you might serve him. All right? Are you ready? All right. Number one, God saves his servant. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Read with me. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, that's a papyrus, and daubed it with butamen and pitch. Butamen was like a tar. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister, that's Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So this son is Moses. Most of you probably know that. He is the towering figure in the Old Testament. His father, Amram, and his mother, Jochebed, were both descendants of Levi. You say, what? why do you tell us that? The tribe of Levi under the law would be the tribe of the priests that would intercede on behalf of the people before a holy God. Quite fitting for the son who would spend 40 years in the desert interceding on behalf of a rebellious people to keep God from killing them in the process of bringing them to the promised land. We're told in the passage that when Jochebed saw Moses, she said he was a fine child. And she wasn't commenting on his looks or his disposition. She was saying something along the lines of he was out of the ordinary. Somehow God had communicated that to her very much as he had communicated to Mary that Christ was out of the ordinary. Maybe not in such great detail, but she knew there was something special about this boy. She knew that there was something God was going to do special with her son. We know that because Stephen in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7 verse 20, tells us that at birth, Moses was, quote, beautiful in God's sight. 
And then we're told a little bit later in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11.23, that he was, quote, no ordinary child. And so we learn from the very beginning of the story that there was something different about Moses. He wasn't just an ordinary Hebrew boy that was saved by some strange circumstance. He was saved by God to serve God. When Jochebed could no longer keep him safe under the decreed of death, the decree of death by Pharaoh, she stepped out in faith again, and she entrusted Moses to the providence of God. Look at the latter part of verse 3. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes, that's papyrus, and daubed it in butamen, tar, and pitch, and she put the child in it, and she placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. She put Moses in the very river that Pharaoh had intended to kill the Hebrew boys. Now, most of you probably have heard the story of Moses being put in a basket. Most of you have probably heard that in some capacity. But did you know that the word for basket used here in verse 3 was used in Genesis 28 times to describe the ark of Noah? Did you know that? It's, an, it's fantastic. And this is not by accident. Remember, Moses wrote Genesis, and now he's writing Exodus, which is the follow the sequel to it. In fact, you can read verse 3 like this. Look at it. You can say, she took him an ark, same word, and placed him in it. And the tie to Genesis here is so beautiful. In order to save her son from Pharaoh's judgment, from the catastrophic genocide of baby boys, Jochebed places Moses in a mini ark, and she prayed that God would deliver her son from the death sentence of Pharaoh. Most of you know that during the flood that destroyed the earth, God spared Noah and his family by putting them on an ark and delivering from his wrath. And from the river here used by Pharaoh to kill the sons of Israel, God spared Moses by putting him in a mini ark. The Israelites, hearing this for the first time, would not have missed the salvation connection that God saved Moses as he had Noah through judgment in an ark of salvation in order to carry out his plan for his people. Both Noah and Moses passed through the deadly waters by riding in an ark made by God, their personal vessels of salvation. Now, when we talk about ties in biblical theology, you have things that are continuous, continuity, and you have things that are not continuous, discontinuity. And that's something we see here, because the greater Noah, the greater Moses, whom you know to be Jesus Christ, God did not provide an ark for. God the Father not only allowed, but he purposed before all creation that his son Jesus Christ would come and not be saved from the flood of judgment, from the wrath of God. He would instead have his blood spilled very much like the goat on the Day of Atonement in the Holiest of Holies, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, the high priest in Leviticus chapter 16 would kill the the goat and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. So Jesus Christ, instead of being saved on an ark, becomes the ark for us. By his blood being spilled in the Holiest of Holies, covering the law that we break, Jesus Christ becomes the Savior for us. In other words, my beloved, because he was not spared, we can be spared. He becomes the ark for all mankind. So your salvation is not in a big boat, and it's not in a little boat like Moses. Your salvation is in a person by the name of Jesus Christ. He was not saved so that we could be saved. His sinless life, 
his sacrificial death, his resurrection from the dead. He is the ultimate ark for the salvation of mankind. And it is a glorious connection and one I pray you never forget. You see, my friends, before you can be trained to be a servant of God, before you can be humbled to become a servant of God, you must be saved to become a servant of God. You can't bypass salvation and just say, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm just going to be trained to serve the Lord. You must be saved first. Saved because, unlike Christ, we are sinful through and through. We're not like Christ in that way. Christ makes us holy by His righteousness, but we are like Noah, and we are like Moses. We are descendants of Adam and Eve. We inherited sin, and we exercise sin every day, all day. And so we need a Savior. We need an ark that we can get in so we can pass through the waters of judgment when they come. Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John made this very clear, identifying Himself as the ark and identifying us as in need of that salvation. Listen to what he said in John chapter 3, verse 17 and following. He said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How? By becoming the ark of salvation through his death on the cross. Then he said this, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Why? Because he gets in the boat. He gets in the ark. And then he says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He stays outside of the boat. He stays outside of salvation. There is no other name by which a man can be saved. There is no other ark. There is no other salvation other than Jesus Christ. My friends, not having a saving faith in Jesus is more than just a religious opinion. It's more than just a worldview today. It's more than just your perspective on life. To not believe in Jesus is to stand condemned already because Jesus is the ark of our salvation. He is the ark of salvation for sinful man. And like Noah and like Moses, you're either in the ark of Christ through faith or you're outside of it. Oh, I pray you're in it. I do. I pray that you know Christ as your Lord and Savior and you can say, I'm in the ark, I'm in that basket, I'm in Christ and therefore I will be saved, not because of me but because of him. So first I pray that you see if you want to be a servant of God and I pray you do, you were made for that purpose. I pray that you see you need to be saved in Christ. You cannot be a servant apart from salvation in the Lord. Number two, God trains his servant. God just doesn't, doesn't just save you and say, okay, now don't do anything. He saves us to be trained to serve him well. He saves us to be trained what we call discipleship in the church, to be raised up. This is his plan from the very beginning. His providential plan, what we see here for Moses, ran a very similar path. Look at me at verse 5 as you see what happens with baby Moses after he's put into his mini ark and Jochebed sends him down the river. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So Pharaoh's daughter just so happens to be bathing that day in the exact same place at the exact same time on the exact same riverbank 
that Jochebed was putting Moses into the river. You say, that's an amazing coincidence. You might say that. It would be foolish. The unbeliever familiar with God or the new believer unfamiliar with the word of God may not know that there is no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing in God's economy as that which happens by chance because God is an eternally sovereign God. The Bible describes God as an all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, living God who's sovereign over all things. If that is true, then there's no such thing as coincidence. It means that He is sovereign over every atom. There never has been, there never will be such a thing as coincidence. And therefore, Pharaoh's daughter, not any daughter, but Pharaoh's daughter, was there by his decree. She was there with her servants to get Moses. She would become instrumental, not only in saving Moses, calling him Moses by drawing him out of the water, but by bringing him into her father's court and raising him up to be an instrument of destruction for her father's house. She didn't know this, of course, but by her taking pity on him, she was exercising the will of God. By her countering her father's commanded culture of death, she should have found him and put him right back. She was commanded by Pharaoh to throw Moses back into the river. She did not. She saved him because God so decreed it. Look at verse 7. Then his sister, that's Moses' sister, that's Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the mother, the child's mother, Jochebed. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman, Moses' mom, took the child and nursed him. My beloved, you got to laugh at this. I mean, this is phenomenal. God has a wonderful sense of humor in showing us how foolish it is for man to try to thwart the will of God. Do you see what happens here? Jochebed takes a step of faith. She puts her baby boy, this fine child, this set-apart child, she puts him into his mini ark and sets him afloat into the river. And in a matter of minutes, she gets him back. She gets him back under the legal protection now of the princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, and she's going to be paid for it. Moms, I, I, I can't imagine a single one of you would say no to someone saying, hey, let me pay you to nurse your child and raise him up. You'd say, all right. I mean, God is so gracious here, is he not? This is how God works, my friends. God's will is never thwarted by the will of man. Not only that, he always blesses those who put their faith and their trust in his will, regardless of how hard it is. I mean, what a step she must have made to put her baby in the basket that day, relying upon God's providential decree and God's goodness to care for Moses. And in the process, she gets him back. This interaction, orchestrated by God, having Moses return to Amran, his father, and Jochebed, the mother, would prove to be crucial in training him up. He would be raised in a Hebrew home. He'd be raised to know Yahweh, this one true living God. 
He would not be exposed to the polytheism of the Egyptians, but would know this one true living God. He would grow to know him. He would grow to worship him. He would grow to know the God, the Father, God the Father, the Father of Amram. We learn this in Exodus 3, 6, who was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He'd be raised in the faith as an Israelite, as one of God's chosen people, learning the character and nature of God and all the promises of God. He would have learned that God had promised to Abraham a great blessing that would come from his descendants. This would be essential because he was going to be the savior of his people. He was going to be instrumental in raising them up in the very faith that he had learned from his own parents. And I would argue, my beloved, it is essential for every parent in Christ to raise their children to know and love the ser- and serve the Lord as well. Proverbs tells parents, listen, parents, not the government, not schools, not daycare, not even the church. God calls parents, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that he should go. Why? So that when he is older, he will not depart from that faith. God gave Moses back to Amran and Jochebed so they could train up Moses in the faith to what? To be a faithful servant of God. If you are a parent, God gave you a son or a daughter to raise him or her up to know, to love, and to serve the Lord too. This is your primary purpose as a parent. If you provide for your child or your children a family home that's filled with love and discipline, if you protect and provide nourish and cherish your children, if you give your children the best education and the best things in life, but you fail to train them in the faith, you have failed as a parent. And I do not say that to be mean or to hurt your feelings. I say that because your son or daughter enters into this world as a sinner in need of salvation. From day one, they need an ark to be placed in. They need salvation in Christ. And just like Moses They have to have a means by which to overcome the judgment that is to come for us all. And you parents, whether you know it or not, you are the primary pastors in your children's life. You're to be raising them in the home to know God, raising them in Scripture, teaching them how to pray, teaching them the gospel of grace day after day so that when God is pleased and God is ready, He will save them too. And so we're very thankful that we have God giving Moses back to his parents to be raised in the faith, and that is passed on to us. Now, what's interesting for Moses is that God also had a plan for him to be raised in an Egyptian home. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, some commentators think 9 or 10, somewhere in that area. So Moses was with his parents in a Hebrew home up until 9 or 10. When When he grew older... She, Moses' mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. It literally means out of or to be pulled out of. And the language here, I I want you to notice, it speaks of a legal adoption. So Pharaoh was brought into, I mean, Moses is brought into Pharaoh's court, into his house, and he's legally adopted. He becomes a grandson of Pharaoh. You probably have heard him called the Prince of Egypt. 
And so he's raised in the royal palace, very likely receiving the finest education an Egyptian could receive. Voluminous. According to archaeological records, it would have included things like law, administration, linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, agriculture, music, medicine, military science, the art of diplomacy. Incredible, the training that Moses got and how skillful that would make him to lead an entire nation of people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And this was all by God's decree to be a deliverer and to be a pastor for his people. When you were saved by grace, whether you know it or not, you were legally adopted by the blood of Jesus Christ into the family of God, into God's church. You were brought into a royal priesthood of believers. Just like Moses, but much better. You were brought into a covenant community of like-minded people committed to loving God and loving one another. And it's within this larger community that God so decrees to equip his saints through pastors, through brothers and sisters, to train one another in the faith. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Why? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, whether you're a member here or not, I'm pretty sure we could all agree that Cambrian Park Baptist Church has not attained this goal. I don't think anybody here would say, oh yeah, we've attained the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We are now perfect. I would argue that God is doing a mighty work and we have a lot more work to do. So we must be about the business of discipling. We must be about the business of training one another in the school of prayer, in the school of Scripture, we must, be, we must enter into this glorious training process that God cultivates in a local church on how to be disciples, how to serve one another, how to care for one another, how to come alongside your brothers and sisters and mourn when they mourn and laugh when they laugh. He's brought us into covenant communities that we might be trained to increase in our love for Christ. Above all else, that you might love God more, that you might follow him more faithfully. God gave us the church to be trained in the same way. So the question, I think, becomes for each of us, are you participating in that training? That's a simple question. Are you part of a local covenant of believers that are participating in the training up of disciples in the faith? Are you training others? Are you being trained yourself? The Bible does not make this optional, my beloved. <clears throat> Medical schools train up doctors. Praise God for that. Law schools train up lawyers. Praise God for that. Churches train up disciples of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. We talk about doctors and we talk about lawyers. We talk about medical schools and law schools. Of those three, which one do you think will go into eternity? I don't believe we're going to have medical doctors in the eschaton. And I don't think, by God's grace, we'll need lawyers. But we will all be disciples of Jesus Christ. So the one place you want to make sure you are trained, doctor or lawyer otherwise, is the church. Because this training goes on forever and ever. This training has no end. I'll put it another way for you. A doctor who does not go to medical school 
does not take the state boards is not a doctor. A lawyer who does not go to law school or pass the bar is a lawyer in name only. And so if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ and you have no participation in the training and discipleship of a local covenant church, it may be possible that you are a disciple in name only. This is the training place. This is where God gathers his people to make disciples in the faith. In our story, the child who was doomed to die by Pharaoh would be trained by Pharaoh's court. You talk about irony in God's economy. The very death sentence that Pharaoh enacted to kill the boys born to Hebrew women would be the means by which God would use to save Moses out of the water, bring him into the royal court, and to train him up for his own destruction and the freedom of God's people. The narrative of slavery and death for God's people, the speed and direction, would be broken by this fine child set apart. Miraculously saved and specifically equipped by God to deliver his people out of slavery. Centuries later, you know this, God would break the speed and direction of slavery and death for all mankind, Jew and Gentile, by setting apart his own beloved son, with whom he said in an audible voice two times, according to Scripture, with whom I am well pleased. Sets his son apart, delivers his son as a baby from the death sentence of King Herod in Matthew chapter 2, and then spends his entire life equipping Jesus to be our Savior. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus grew what? In wisdom and stature, in favor with God and with man. He is the greater Moses. He was sent for that purpose, but not just to save the Israelites from the slavery in Egypt, but to save Jew and Gentile from the slavery of sin. And we are so thankful that God sent him. So God saves his servants, and God trains his servants up. And lastly, I pray you're still with me, probably the most important part of this, God humbles his servants. If you want to be a servant of God, you must be saved. If you want to be a servant of God, you must be trained. And if you want to be a servant of the Most High God, you must be humble. And you cannot do that on your own. Your flesh hates humility and it feeds pride. And we see that here in the latter part of this story. Point number three, God humbles his servant. Question for you. Do you know what the leading cause of death is for men and women in the United States? heart disease. It's heart disease. You know what the leading cause of spiritual death is for men and women in the United States? It's heart disease. <laughs> Same problem. Not physical, but spiritual. The deadly belief in our own hearts. Now listen, that you can live your life in such a way, by your own power, by your own upbringing, by your own education, that you can live your life in such a way that you can save yourself and think that you can save others. This is born in the heart of man. This is born in the heart of, a, of pride. You think, we think we're good enough in our own works, in our own strength. Was it not pride in the very beginning that set all of creation spinning when Adam and Eve thought that they could take and eat from the one tree God said not to eat from and in so doing become like God? It was pride that compelled Cain in jealousy to kill his brother Abel over an offering made to God. And it would be pride that would lead Moses 
to fall as well and compel God to intercede on our behalf and redeem Moses out of his pride. Look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? Verse 14, The man answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So when you move from verse 10 to verse 11, a significant amount of time has passed. We know how much, because we're told by Stephen in Acts 7.23, 40 years. So we have a big jump in the story here. Moses is now 40 years old, and what we see here is an identity crisis. This could be like the first identity crisis in Scripture. This man, a midlife crisis, he realizes that there's tension now between his Hebrew upbringing and his royal priesthood or his princehood in the courts. If you remember, he was raised in a Hebrew home to know and love and serve God. He was raised to know the promises made to Abraham that God would take for himself and make a great nation and lead them into the promised land. And from Abraham's descendant, the offspring would come that would be the savior of the world. So he knew these promises and he worshiped God, but he was also raised in the royal courts of Pharaoh. And if you remember from last week, these two courts are at war with each other. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man have been at war with each other since Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the serpent, which represents Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and the seed of the woman, which represents the Israelites, have been and always be, will be at war until Christ comes again in glory. In other words, Moses, he could not be a faithful Hebrew and a faithful Egyptian at the same time. This was truly a midlife crisis at the age of 40. So the question in the storyline is, what will Moses choose? Will he align himself as an Egyptian prince with all the pomp and all the power and all the pleasantries of life? Will he forsake his royal family on earth and condescend and align himself with his own people and enslaved people and become part of of the royal family of God. We look at verse 7. We're told that Moses went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. This is not a casual looking. The, the, the Hebrew communicates this a little bit better. He went out with a serious evaluation of the hardship of his people to do something about it. He was going to intervene. God was moving upon Mer- uh, Moses' heart. According to the text, Moses observes one of the Egyptian taskmasters, listen, this is beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, And so you really have your answer. Who's writing this? Moses is the author. And Moses is telling you right now, he's observing this beating taking place, and he says, one of his own people. The translation can also be one of my brothers. And so we have an answer. Moses is going to align himself with the people of God. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, we are told that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He rejected that royal life 
to take up a royal residency with God. You see, before God could use Moses as a faithful servant to lead his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, he would first have to lead Moses out of Egypt, physically and spiritually. There was too much royal blood still running through Moses' veins. Up to that point, Moses had everything he could possibly want. He had education, he had money, he had power, he had pleasure. And therefore, at this point, he was ill-equipped to be a servant leader for God to lead his people out of Egypt. His ties with Egypt would have to be broken completely, and his allegiance to God made right. We're going to see more of that next week. I would argue, my beloved, that that movement from the world into the kingdom of God is no different for us. You cannot serve God and man at the same time. You cannot serve Pharaoh and the people of God. You cannot love God and love the things of this world. Jesus made this very clear both in his life and in his teachings. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. I'm afraid, my beloved, in the Western church that we're really struggling with this. I think we continue to attempt to have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. We think that we can serve God faithfully and have an inordinate desire for our job or for money or for our children or our grandchildren. We think that we can be committed to Christ our King and simultaneously to our hobbies and our religion and our entertainment. But more oftentimes than not, it reveals a divided heart, just like Moses. And a heart divided is not able to serve the Lord well. It will be hampered if not rendered completely ineffective. Jesus shows us a much better way. If you remember in the Gospel of Luke, as the day drew near for our Lord to be arrested, falsely accused, beaten beyond recognition, sentenced to die and upon a cross, and then crucified. As that day drew near for him, we're told in the Gospel of Luke that when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He said, I will go straight where my Father wants me to go, to the cross. Undivided heart. Christ must have had an undivided heart to go through that type of pain and suffering on our behalf. God's servants must strive not upon your own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit to have an undivided heart. Christ gives that to you through the Holy Spirit. Through His righteousness, He gives you a desire to be solely committed to God if you are in Him. God would accomplish this solidarity in Moses' life by breaking Moses' allegiance to Egypt in using his own pride. We see right off that rather than God relying upon the rather than Moses relying upon the power of God, to set the people free, he takes matters into his own hands. Look at verse 12 again. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses kills the Egyptian taskmaster and then buries him to hide the body. Now, I got to tell you, the commentators were bending over backwards, many, to try to justify Moses' actions. It's quite humorous, actually, especially in the, the Reformed uh, tradition. Some say that it was lex talionis, law of retaliation. 
Some say it was justifiable homicide. Some say he was merely defending his brother and taking the taskmaster's life. They pulled out from Acts chapter 7, verse 23. My beloved, I'm going to tell you plainly, it was murder. He did not have the authority to kill this taskmaster. Step in and defend his brother? Yes, but not commit murder. Not commit murder. And from the text, I mean, we actually see it. What does he do? He looks to the left or the right to see if anybody's watching. Then he kills the man, and then he buries the body. That's not a clear conscience. That's not something you do and think that is pleasing to my Lord. Moses, in attempting, now listen closely, in attempting to save one of his brothers, had to commit murder to do so. He was powerless to bring about the plan of God and redeeming Israel out of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. It was not God's plan for Moses to go around and kill the Egyptians one by one. The fallout from this event, although catastrophic for Moses, proved useful for God. Look at verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Did you mean to kill me? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And so Moses had ruined his testimony. Look at verse 14 again. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? It would be God, but they're not buying it. And they said, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So his testimony was ruined because he acted by his own pride, by his own power. And now his life is in danger because Pharaoh wants to kill him and he has to flee. You might be thinking to yourself, this is some savior. This is some savior. Moses was forced to flee for his life from the only home that he knew and become a sojourner in a foreign land. In a matter of 24 hours, I want you to get this, Moses went from being one of the most powerful, influential men in the most powerful country in the world to a fugitive on the run. And you say, well, this is a tragic story. It is, and yet this is exactly where God wanted him to be. This is exactly where God needed him to be to humble him to become the servant that God wanted him to be. You see, Moses had too much pride He had too much pride in his heart to be a faithful servant of the living God. So to show this royal prince that his strength and his power would not be sufficient, but only God's strength and God's power, he changed Moses' resume. He changed it from prince of Egypt to murderer on the run. And this would become the savior of God's people. According to Acts Chapter 7, verse 25, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand when he killed the Egyptian taskmaster, but they did not understand. They did not understand because what they saw was a man acting upon his own power, not acting upon the power of God, and they knew this could not be a prince or judge over us. And so Moses was rightly rejected by his people. He was pursuing a salvation, listen, by works and not by grace, by his own power and not by the power of God. And yet God saves for his own glory. God saves a people. He saved the Israelites out of Egypt. He saves a people, his church today, for his glory. If we do that work, we glorify in it. And God says, there's no way I'm giving my glory to anyone. And so he had to use these circumstances to humble Moses. 
It's the same for us, my beloved. It will not be by your heritage, your church attendance, your Bible reading. It will not be the degree to which you help the poor or come alongside those in need that you will be saved. Christ alone. If you have watched the news this week, Senator Markey from Massachusetts introduced a fascinating piece of legislation, utopian in every extreme. It proposed extreme environmental and socialistic pieces to be brought into our federal government. He called it the Green New Deal. If you know your history, you know the tie to that as well. The senator said this when introducing his Green New Deal. Listen to what he said. I was floored, as you should be. Quote, we will save all creation. We will save all creation by engaging in massive job creation. Now, my beloved, it would be a glorious thing if we could pass a, a bill in the Senate and legislate and save all creation. It would be an amazing thing. But he was proposing salvation and socialism. And our history tells us that socialism is a, is a false savior that leads to the murder of millions. Whenever your pride tells you, whenever your pride tells you to put your security or your hope in anything other than Jesus Christ, it is a lie. Whether it be a piece of legislation or your church attendance or your baptism 20 years ago, if you are to be saved by God, if creation is to be redeemed by God, it will be by God through Christ, period. Nothing else. If you are to hope in a salvation for anyone in your life that does not know Christ, it will not be by you convincing them. It will not be by you selling them. It will not be by your great apologetic skills. It will be by the power of the gospel of grace. When Jesus came to earth, like Moses, he found out that he was going to be rejected. He would not be rejected because he behaved foolishly, as Moses did. He would be rejected because he denied his own power and his own strength and relied completely upon the power and strength of his heavenly Father to do his will. Jesus came, as you know, in complete submission to the will of the Father, he came submitting to all of his laws perfectly and the plan for his life and his death and his resurrection. And as a result, he was the man who was imminently radiant. So radiant that the world hated and rejected him. Like Moses, we are told in John chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him as prince and as judge. Just like Moses, but unlike Moses, they rejected him as prince and judge over them, not because he was a murderer, listen closely, but because he cast the light of his own righteousness on our own and their murderous hearts. He made them see that they were the murderers. John chapter 3, verse 19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Our works are evil. We so need Christ. My friends, if you want to be part, and I pray you do, of the unbalanced force that changes the speed and direction of man's descent into hell, then it cannot be by your strength or your power or your wisdom. It must be by the power of the gospel of grace. It must be by us showing the world this glorious Savior of ours. 
this crucified, risen Savior, showing him the holiness of God and the depth of our own sin, showing him the beauty and the majesty and the loveliness of Jesus Christ, our Savior, showing the world that Jesus Christ is the ark of salvation and that if they want to be saved, they must get in him by faith. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe. All who believe. Both Moses and Jesus, in choosing to identify themselves with the people of God, endured suffering and humiliation. We'll see more of that next week. Both gave up power both gave up royal courts. Both stepped into the suffering of God's people in order to set God's people free. Both suffered the humiliation of being rejected by God's people and were cast out. Moses, because he was guilty as a murderer. Jesus, because he was innocent and died as a savior. And both were used by God in miraculous ways to bring about God's purposed will. Freedom for his people dwelling in his presence now and forever. My beloved, you cannot be a useful, fa- a useful servant in this kingdom unless you are saved, trained, and humbled by the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace reminds us that we are not like Jesus, we are like Moses, and we are like Noah, and we need an ark to save us from our own sinful hearts. The gospel of grace reminds us that daily. The gospel of grace reminds us that Once we were saved by grace, and now that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are to be trained in the ways of the faith. You have a responsibility to engage in that discipling process, to disciple and to be discipled, that we might walk faithfully in this life. The gospel of grace reminds us daily of our humble position before a holy God. Even if we have all the blessings of Moses, all the education, all the power, all the royal pleasures of this world we cannot save ourselves christ is our only hope you have no righteousness of your own the righteousness and goodness that you need to come before a holy god is the righteousness that comes through christ by faith paul said in second corinthians 5 11, god made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we what we might become the righteousness of god I pray that you do not let your pride destroy your life and your eternity. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Christ is your ark. By God's grace, if you do not know him, if much of what I said seemed a bit strange to you, but you know that you are a sinner in need of salvation, I pray that today you would get into that ark that you would know that Christ is the means by which you must be saved, that you'd stop relying upon your upbringing or your pride, your biblical knowledge or your baptism 30 years ago, and you would say, Christ must be my life, and that you would put all your faith and all your trust in him to save you. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and I know many of you do, I pray that your life would be committed to being trained in this faith, that you rely upon the scripture and the Holy Spirit and prayer to humble you each and every day to be the servant that God created and called you to be. And oh, what a glorious servant you are to be. It wasn't just Moses that God sees as a fine child. Every single person saved by grace in Christ is set apart to do a mighty work. So ask God to show that to you, that you might be faithful all your days. Amen? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the story of Moses that we know to be true. We're thankful, Father, that you cared for your people so long ago by raising up a deliverer to lead them out of Egypt and into the promised land. We're so thankful that Moses points to Christ, who is to become the Savior of the world. I ask, Lord, that you would help us this day see with great clarity this plan has never changed. This plan has never changed ever since Genesis chapter 3. You had purpose before anything ever was to send Christ in the world to die for sinners like us. Show us the glory of this plan. Show us the great sacrifice that Jesus made. Increase our love for him through this, that we might be the people that you have saved us to be, trained us to be, and humbled us to be. And Lord, please make us a humble people. We cannot do any of this in our own pride or by our own strength. But you can through us. You can do all things through us. We praise you, Lord, for the gathering this day here in this church and all your true churches throughout the world. I pray that you would take the preaching and the teaching and the songs and the prayers and that you would apply them to our hearts so that we might worship you and glorify you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.